Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. other thing that I found interesting about this is that even with something as dull sounding as the control of power on interconnected power systems has lots of great stories behind it. The individuals who worked on the projects were interesting in and of themselves. They were experimenters. Sometimes they were not good guys. Other times they were very good guys. And it's always worth scratching the surface of something that we take for granted to see what lies behind it. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, in the era of the Me Too movement, if I may, <laughs> it's interesting to look at an industry that has been so dominated um, by men throughout its entire history and to understand that it's beginning to change and to look for ways to attract women into this business because I think there are going to be going forward opportunities for creative individuals to make important contributions. And um, understanding that relatively recently women have become more populous in the ranks of people in the industry might be encouraging to young women thinking about their professional futures. That was Julie Cohn, author of the new book, The Grid, Biography of an American Technology. This is New Books and Technology. I am your host, Jasmine McNeely. One of the first things we always like to do on New Books and Technology is have the author talk about themselves and introduce themselves to the audience. So who is Julie Cohen? Thank you first for inviting me to do this. It's a real honor and a pleasure. Um, I am a historian based in Houston, Texas, and um, this is not my first career. It's a perhaps third career. Um, I've worked in government, in the nonprofit sector, and in other capacities in universities in the past. Um, But I returned to graduate school in 2006 to get a PhD in history and basically to write this book. The book has some personal connections to you as well, right? Yes, exactly. I grew up with a dad who was an electrical engineer and his life work was the development of control technologies for electric power systems and specifically for interconnected power systems in other words, the grid. I remember many attempts as a child to understand what kind of work he did, and he worked very hard to explain it to me. He was always very excited about what he did, and I think he was tickled that a little girl would ask him. But uh, it was all sort of beyond me. And I think it's really beyond most of us because we might see a power line as we're driving down the highway, but most of the time we don't think too much about where our electricity is coming from or how it got here until we don't have it. (laughs) So at any rate, um, yeah, so he was the first influence on my interest in this topic. The story began really with a box of letters, which often appeals to historians. Um, That's what drew me back to graduate school. He kept letters that he received when he was a young engineer living in San Francisco in the 1930s. 
And I found those letters after he had passed away in a box in our attic and kind of sat with them for years, not quite sure what to do with them. Um, But when I mentioned that I had these letters to somebody who was already a historian, he said, oh, well, you absolutely have to come back to school and you have to write about your father and you have to write about what he was working on because there are gaps in our understanding of the power system and electrification of our country. I followed his advice. Now, would you otherwise have gone back to school? I really don't know if I would have or not. This is very personal, but... um, I had worked for the Center for Technology and Teaching and Learning at Rice University for several years. I was a project manager there, and we had a great team and did some really cool projects. But um, for a variety of reasons, the team was preparing to break up, and it was time for me to consider a next move. So I think it was fortuitous that I had this conversation right around that time, and it made sense then to go back to school. I think in the absence of that conversation, I might have followed a different path. What made you want to then take it further to get it published? Well, I guess in part because I had read uh, deeply about electrification, primarily in the works of other historians, but also other social scientists or amateur writers or engineers who shared their memoirs or whatever, and realized that there was a kind of important untold story here about our interconnectedness and how and why we ended up this way. That was an incentive to take the years of research and writing for an academic audience and try to make it more interesting and more useful for a wider audience of people. What specifically about the grid makes it a perhaps quintessential American technology? I think our grid uh, stands out across the the globe um, for a couple of reasons, and they're fairly American reasons. One is that it developed both with private sector involvement and government involvement um, without one side or the other ever really taking over. Uh, So it reflects the capitalist democracy that is our country and also the uh, service orientation of our governments. Secondly, it is, uh, or it was, uh, the exemplar of technical innovation for electrification through most of the 20th century. So other countries often look to the engineering work done here to understand how to improve their networks where they were. Is that still the case? I'm not entirely certain. I haven't dived deeply into contemporary interconnection technologies and politics around the world, but ours is certainly still the largest in the world. Well, we actually have four grids, which I'm sure you figured out if you've delved into the book a little bit, Um, but still the largest in the world. And in some ways, perhaps the most complicated because our grid is made up of so many component parts and has so many owners and operators. And you've used the the word interconnectedness. First, I think it's important. We, we have a sense of what interconnection means, which is that we're linked to each other. Technically, for people in the power industry, interconnection specifically refers to connections amongst alternating current networks. So those are systems that have to be operated in perfect synchrony in order to function well. Um, We have some direct current components in our power networks. Those are not considered interconnections. They're simply links or connections. 
Um, so for me, I look at that as both technically interesting and socially interesting. There's, there's an idea that comes out of computer science called interoperability, which means that all the parts of a system have to not only link to each other, but be comprehensible to each other and work nicely to work and play nicely together. And in our networks of power, uh, not only do the physical pieces of the grid have to work in synchrony, but all the different organizational parts, the local power company, the uh, system operators, the regulators, and so on and so forth, they have to um, work together and play well together as well for the system to function. And one of the things I found really interesting in the book is that throughout the history of the electrification of the United States, there was both competition as well as collaboration that, that happened. And I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of both of those things happening in tandem for the development of electricity. There was a point in my um, graduate research when I was studying a little bit about oil industries around the world. And one thing that was striking to me was that while there was a lot of competition among oil companies in, say, the United States, there was also a certain degree of collaboration on some technologies across oil fields, for example. But in the Soviet Union, there was a completely different path of development, and there was no communication between Soviet engineers and American engineers. That's not true for the process of electrification. Um, starting in the 1950s, um, as a deliberate effort to provide social interaction between um, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, engineers visited each other's countries and looked at each other's power networks and talked about their uh, technologies and processes for control. I think that was possible because there was never any possibility that a power company in the United States would be in direct competition with a power company in the Soviet Union, while an oil operator might be trying to sell a product to the same buyer as in the U.S., you know, let me rephrase that. An oil company in the United States might be trying to sell product to the same customer as an oil company out of the Soviet Union. That held true also within the United States. Um, beginning early in the 20th century, um, we developed a system of regulated monopolies where a private utility had a geographically determined region in which it operated. Um, this was controversial, but also allowed for fairly rapid expansion of electric power systems in those monopoly regions. It meant that a utility in Boston was not in direct competition with a utility in New York or in Florida. And the engineers working in those systems or the operators, these weren't always necessarily engineers, um, could share ideas and technologies and information with each other without risking um, commercial uh, disaster because the other guy knew what the first guy was doing. So I think that the uh, system that limited a certain amount of competition also allowed for a lot of collaboration. Now, there was also stiff competition on the side of the manufacturers. And you might recall the uh, battle of the currents between Edison and Westinghouse and of course, even today, uh, competition on television or the radio for this electrical gizmo versus that electrical gizmo. Um, 
And that was certainly true for the instruments that the power companies used on their power systems. But even with that competition, because the utilities themselves were collaborating, information got around pretty fast. And the power system experts shared a lot of ideas with each other. They tested their ideas side by side. They um, critiqued each other, both privately and professionally, in journals and at conference meetings and so forth. And so it was a really interesting hybrid of, as you said, uh, competition and collaboration. One of the things I found interesting in the book is that the history of electrification of the United States wasn't solely a East Coast venture. It right. really surprised me that the West Coast, uh, in the young, you know, way younger than obviously the East, was on the forefront of getting power to people and industry. And I was wondering. What do you see as like some of the ge- perhaps geographical issues that, that came about that, that helped spur on the electrification of certain areas over others? I think geography was really important for a couple of different reasons. The U.S. was distinct in another way from other parts of the world in the process of electrification. For example, by the early 20th century, um, only 10% of uh, the agricultural regions of the country had power and By, say, 1920, cities were pretty thoroughly electrified, whereas in Europe, in certain countries in Europe, uh, the focus was on electrifying rural areas rather than urban areas. So that kind of socioeconomic decision-making was the first layer to think about when looking at the geography of the country. There was a heavy focus in the U.S. of building markets in urban centers. And I'm pretty sure this has a lot to do with the fact that the earliest operators often were commercial enterprises and they wanted to make money and they knew their wealthy and profitable potential customers were in the urban areas. The earliest power systems that are notable in this country were in major cities, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, so on and so forth. But the second piece of the puzzle has to do with where you get the basic energy resources to make electricity or electric energy. Um, Electricity in the air is interesting, but we can't really use it very effectively. I haven't yet heard of anyone turning static electricity into a light switch, but although I have heard of people (laughs) getting shocked when they touch their light switch, we need to have another energy resource to begin with. And in the earliest years, the two primary sources were coal and falling water. There was a lot of coal in the east, a lot of falling water in the West. So individuals or companies interested in building networks had to contend with getting the energy resource they plan to use, turning it into electricity, and then getting the electricity to their potential customers. Um, a lot of early uh, electric companies were municipal because cities wanted to modernize and light their streets and minimize crime and attract shoppers and so on and so forth. Um, So if you were a city entity, let's say the city of Los Angeles, your best bet for getting power was to find um, falling water that you could use to make electricity and then bring the electricity to your city. If you were on the East Coast, say Chicago, um, your best bet was to use coal in coal-fired plants. And so on the West Coast, those companies had a real incentive to be innovative and figure out how to get power from the mountains, you know, the waterfalls on the, river, on the rivers, 
um, to their cities, to their customers, to their agricultural regions to make it a useful commodity or service for their customers. So what do you think that the importance of understanding the grid is for today? I think there are several reasons it would be useful for a contemporary reader to look back. Um, First of all, I think it's easy to imagine that our grid is, you know, one big network operated by the federal government, and there's one person in charge who decides how it's all going to work. I mean, we have a national highway network, we have um, integrated railroads that are, you know, there are private ownership in parts of it, but there's a certain amount of government intervention. The grid is not like that. All the different pieces of it are owned by a lot of different entities. So as a policymaker looks ahead and says, well, we're going to switch more and more to renewable resources or... um, Private individuals are putting solar panels on their rooftops, and so we're going to maybe not need the grid in the future. There are a lot of stakeholders who want to have a say in what the future of our electric power system looks like and what the future of the grid might be. Um, To understand how and why that came to be, one can look back and watch the development process to see where all those different stakeholders came from and how they're involved. Mm -hmm. Secondly, especially with respect to renewable resources, our current interest in exploiting wind and solar power and geothermal power and so forth is not a brand new idea. At the turn of the, from the 19th to the 20th century, there was a great deal of interest in using hydroelectric power because it was considered um, not in the terminology of the day, but as we would look back, what we would call the desirable renewable resource. Um, You didn't have any air pollution once you built your dam. It was essentially free. Um, And people at that time wanted to develop hydroelectric power as quickly and as widely as possible and use it to either displace or supplement coal-fired power across the country. They met many of the same challenges that uh, we are facing today. For As I mentioned before, if you were on the West Coast and you wanted to access hydropower from the Sierra Nevadas, you had to figure out how to get it to Los Angeles or San Francisco. Um, now, if you live in Texas and you want to access wind power from the Panhandle or the South Coast, you have to figure out how to get it to Austin or Houston or Dallas. So similar kinds of problems. Likewise, um, at the beginning of the electrification process here, it wasn't obvious that connecting everybody to a central service was the best choice. And in fact, manufacturers strongly preferred to have in-house power plants. That's not so different from today when a big company might say, well, to heck with the grid, I'm going to install solar panels on my rooftop and put in generators and batteries as backup and be independent or a small town might decide to do that. So the tension between maintaining large interconnected systems versus um, segregating into smaller networks that existed 100 years ago are in play again now. Thirdly, I think that the history of the grid reflects also the complexity of dealing with electricity. And as people play with new technologies for generating and using power, Um, we may yet still be discovering new behaviors of electricity that hadn't been anticipated in the past. And this was um, an inherent feature of the story that I told in my book, that um, the system operators understood direct current fairly well, 
um, alternating current less well. Once they started connecting to each other, they discovered a variety of challenges in controlling the movement of electricity and making sure that enough was available at the right time at the right place for a customer. Um, this problem it continued throughout the mid-century. I think you could say that the operators and engineers uh, devised a reasonable solution by the 1950s, but there were still problems. And so, for example, when um, the first big coast-to-coast -coast network emerged in 1967, um, there were major problems in keeping it tied together. Uh, the West Coast, uh, the Western interconnection oscillated at a slightly different rate from the Eastern interconnection. Mm -hmm. That was discovered in the 1960s. The reasons for it were better understood only in the last 10 years. So these kinds of um, complications of working with this particular type of energy may continue to be of interest to the, the planners who are investing in new technologies going forward because they may face unanticipated behaviors that they haven't understood yet. This has been New Books in Technology. Thank you.